You can stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We will read from Matthew 17. Matthew 17. We will read from verses 14 through 23. Matthew 17, verses 14 through 23. We did add in a fourth prompt. We did the full Acts, A-C-T-S, so... And we'll be doing that going into the future, so just so you know, to expect four prayer prompts rather than three. Um, we want to be thankful uh, for the things the Lord has given us. Matthew seventeen fourteen through 23. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said, to them because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. This is God's word. You may be seated. Lord, we come to your word this morning and we ask for grace to understand it, to know it. Lord, to understand what you are saying. Help us to not read ourselves onto your word, but rather to dig out from your word what is there and to live by it, to not merely hear and understand and think that it's nice, but to change. And Lord, we know that we have no power to change in and of ourselves, but we pray that you, Holy Spirit, would enable us to change, to grow, to conform our lives more completely to the way you want us to walk. Lord, please bless our time this morning. Give me clarity. Give us all ears to hear and grace to obey what you are saying. Grow our faith. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you noticed uh, in the last couple verses here in 22 through 23, uh, a sort of repetition that has happened with something earlier that Jesus mentioned back in 1621. You remember that kind of where we're at in Matthew, Jesus has plenty displayed who he is as the Messiah, the ultimate um, the ultimate Davidic king, God the Son incarnate. He's displayed that over and over and over again, and yet the generation has rejected him. And uh, even though his disciples confess him to be the Christ, the ultimate Davidic king, they still don't fully understand what that means because what Jesus said in verse 21, and here's the repetition I was talking about, he said this, from that time, from the time of that confession of Jesus to be the Christ, and from the time that Jesus even stated what he's going to do in building his church and Peter's role in that. He said in verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And basically you see the same thing repeated in today's text in verses 22 through 23, that same theme. Now, what that clues us into is it seems as though Matthew is bookending this whole section that we've seen from 1621 to now 1723. And you remember what's in that section. First, we had Jesus' prediction in 1621 about his coming suffering and dying and rising again. He had Peter saying, far be it from you, Lord. Peter rebuking Jesus. And then Jesus rebuking Peter and then telling to his whole disciples, here's the cost of discipleship. You want to come after me. You want to come after me, the Messiah. You want to follow me. 
then it's going to mean disowning yourself, taking up your cross, and following me. Following me on the same road of suffering and death that I'm going to have. But it's not going to end there. It's going to end. It ends for the Son of Man in glory. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he's going to repay each person according to what he has done. And Jesus promises, you're going to have to follow the same road, suffering before glory. And he says, but I'm going to give you a snapshot of that coming kingdom, which is exactly what he does. In last week's text from 17.1 through 13, where Jesus, the, the, his, his heavenly glory is unveiled before his disciples and the display of what his glory is going to look like as king coming the day of the Lord to judge and to rescue. And then even in connection with that, the discussion of, well, what, what about Elijah? I thought Elijah was supposed to come before the day of the Lord. And Jesus saying, yeah, he is going to come. He will restore all things, but because of the but Elijah, the Elijah-like one, John the Baptist, he already came and was rejected, which is the precursor for what's also going to happen to the Son of Man. Elijah's going to come, and he's going to restore all things, but this time, the Elijah-like person, John the Baptist, came, and he, they did what they wanted to him, and it's the same thing that's going to happen to the Son of Man, the same thing is going to happen to Jesus. So, in this section, apart from what we're also going to see with the, the healing of the boy today, everything is oriented towards this aspect of Jesus going to the cross. I mean, that's geographically, he's way in the north. He's now on the, the trajectory to the south, to Jerusalem, to suffer, to die. Uh, that's now the orientation of the gospel and that's been a focus in this section, sandwiched between these two predictions of his suffering and death, that the Messiah must suffer. It is it's a divine must. This is what the scriptures talked about. This is what's going to happen. It's a must. It will happen. And he's been trying to teach his disciples throughout all of this, this is what must happen to show them that the Messiah comes to his glory through suffering, through suffering. And they're still not there yet. They're still not there yet. And what's interesting this morning is that Matthew, and what he shares in 17, 14 through 23, is in the connection, in connection with this idea of the Messiah must suffer and die and rise again before his glory, Matthew develops one of his big themes that he has been doing in his gospel, and that theme is the theme of faith. Faith. We've seen him talk about faith a great deal in this gospel, and that is something he develops even more today. And we would all agree, I hope we would all agree, that a correct grasp of Faith is absolutely essential to salvation, is it not? We normally, I was going to say, uh, well, you see that banner behind me? Well, the banners got taken down for the Christmas decorations. But normally we have banners behind us and with the five solas, and one of those solas is sola fide, which is just Latin for faith alone. Because we believe that one is justified by faith alone in Christ alone. A correct grasp of faith is absolutely essential to salvation, but we must be careful because you just tell someone, oh yeah, what do you need to do to become a Christian? Well, just believe. But what does that mean? What does faith mean? What is faith? We can think about faith in multiple ways. We, we tend to think about it in our culture as mental assent or as belief without proof or something like that. But is that how the scriptures themselves define faith. And one of the things that Matthew has been doing throughout his gospel is he's actually been helping us, he's been helping his audience, his Jewish Christian audience, define what is genuine faith. What is genuine faith? And if salvation rests on faith alone, in Christ alone, then understanding what do we mean when we talk about biblical faith is absolutely essential. And in fact, it's dangerous to just assume that we all understand what we mean when we talk about faith. We need to define it because the scriptures define it, because Matthew defines it. 
So what have we seen so far in Matthew about faith? What does he define faith to be? Well, it starts this way. Faith is not self-oriented at all. It's not internal. Sometimes, and I've used this illustration before, I stole it from someone else, but sometimes we think of faith like the faith toothpaste tube, right? I can get that last, if I just believe enough, if I just believe enough, I will be fine. But that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith looks totally outside of itself. The object of biblical faith is the Father and the Son, looking totally and completely to them as the trustworthy ones. That's where it starts. The object, and we've seen that in Matthew, that the object of faith is external. It looks totally outside of itself, and it rests on the one who is trustworthy. You can see this in one of the episodes of faith, where Matthew is helping us to see what faith is, in Matthew 15. In Matthew 15, Matthew 15, 21 through 28, I'll go ahead and read this, just to remind us of what Matthew has already said about faith, and one of its key highlights One of the key people in Matthew that shows the kind of faith that we're talking about, Matthew 15, 21 through 28, says this, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. And we talked about in that section, what is the woman doing? She is looking totally outside of herself to Jesus, and she identifies him correctly. How does she identify him? As the son of David, which is another way of describing the Messiah, the ultimate Davidic king. She identifies him correctly, but she doesn't just stop there. Because of his identity, she sees and his character, his power, his authority, and based on that, she acts. And it's those three things. Identity, you identify Jesus, you identify God, who he is, and because of his identity, because of the son's identity, because of Jesus' identity as the ultimate Davidic king, as God the Son incarnate, because of that, that implies that you also see his character his power, his authority. And based on that, it leads you to action. It leads you to doing. In this case, the woman, she sees Jesus' identity, son of David, the ultimate Davidic king. She relies on his character, his power and authority. She knows he can do it because of who he is. And then what, she, what does she do? She acts, meaning she's persistently asking even in the face of seeming opposition from Jesus, she's asking him to do what this healing for her daughter. And that is faith in, in Matthew. Identifying who Jesus is, acknowledging that totally, seeing his power, his character, his authority, and then acting on it. And we'll see that again developed in our text this morning. But what is Matthew adding? What is he adding? He's already talked about faith. What is he adding in our section this morning? Well, he's adding it in the context of his predictions of suffering. His predictions of suffering, death, and resurrection, he adds to this theme of faith that he's been developing in his gospel. So that leads us to our main idea of our text this morning, which is this. Examine your faith. Is it genuine is it great? That is where the text is going this morning. Matthew would want his Jewish Christian audience to examine their faith 
And it's the same for us. Examine your faith. Is it genuine? Is it great? And we start in verses 14 through 18 with this idea coming out of it. Genuine faith, genuine faith, recognizes Jesus' full identity and does not abuse his mercy. Genuine faith recognizes Jesus' full identity and does not abuse his mercy. Look at verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, now who's the they? It's Peter, James, and John, and Jesus. They were just on top of whatever mountain it was that the transfiguration happened, where Jesus' glory is unveiled. Uh, We saw in the last bit that they were walking down the mountain, talking about Elijah, and now they've come evidently kind of to the base of the mountain, and there's a crowd there. And they come to the crowd, and immediately a man comes up to him and kneeling before him. Now, what's interesting is, remember, I just read Matthew 15, 21 through 28, talking about the Canaanite woman, and I want you to observe the similarity between how the Canaanite woman came to Jesus and how this man is, the similarities and the differences. Because the Canaanite woman also knelt before Jesus. It's a posture of humility, of recognition that this one in front of me is superior So this guy comes up to Jesus, he kneels before him, and says this, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, and often uh, he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. Now, you can also notice there not only the posture of kneeling, but also the appeal. The appeal... If you look back at chapter 15, what the Canaanite woman was, Lord, have mercy on me, son of David. It was basically the same thing here. There's a difference, though. But he appeals using similar language. Lord, have mercy on my son. And in this case, it's a a father with his son. In the last case with the Canaanite woman, it was with a mother with her daughter. And what is the guy appeal uh, on? We find out that the the child is demon-possessed, but he's having fits. He's having seizures. And these seizures are life-threatening. They cause him either to get roll into the fire or into the water. It's a life-threatening situation, and he's appealing based on that. Now, with what we've seen in Matthew so far, we're already preconditioned to think about what's going to happen, aren't we? Basically, we've seen lots of appeals like this in Matthew, and what we expect to happen is this. We expect that Jesus graciously and compassionately is going to heal, and uh, uh, that's what he's been doing. So it's surprising, it's surprising then in how Jesus responds. Yes, he does heal ultimately, but not, after, not before saying this in verse 17. And Jesus answered, who's he answering? He's answering the father who just appealed to him. And he says this, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? So he's answering the father who's appealing, Lord, have mercy. He comes in this humble posture. But there's a problem. There's a problem. And part of the problem is illustrated with not only comparing with the episode with the Canaanite woman, but also similar episodes in Matthew. Because every other time that in Matthew where someone comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, have mercy, every other time except for this instance in Matthew is added the phrase, son of David. What does son of David mean? We've already said it. Son of David is another way of referring to Jesus being the Messiah. So what is happening here? This guy comes up in a humble posture, and it sounds good. Uh, Lord, now remember, the, the term Lord in itself is not, it does not signify either that Jesus is the king or that he's deity or anything like that. It's just a term of politeness. Like, sir, but more than that, he does recognize Jesus' superiority, but what's missing? Son of David. 
In other words, this guy is coming up, the way Matthew is presenting this situation, this guy comes up and does not acknowledge Jesus' identity. And think about how Matthew has been structured up to this point. Jesus' identity has been like the first half of Matthew, showing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So for this guy to come up and kneel before Jesus and not acknowledge his identity is a serious thing, and it is why Jesus responds the way he does. But notice how he does respond. Yes, he is responding to the Father, but he's speaking to his whole generation. And we, we, we can look in previous chapters, chapter 11 and chapter 12. By that point, Jesus has been doing all these miracles. He's been proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven. It has drawn near. And yet Jesus characterizes his generation. Remember the parable of the, the children in the marketplace? And he essentially calls his generation capricious and silly because they're not listening to uh, they're not listening to John the Baptist. They're not listening to Jesus. They're playing, it's like they're playing games. And not only that, he has already called a couple times the generation evil and adulterous. Who is he referring to with this generation? He's talking about the generation of Israel that is in the land of Palestine at that time, and that's who he was ministering to. I was sent to no one except the lost house of Israel. And they are evil and they're adulterous because why? They have not responded in repentance and faith. Oh yeah, there's, now remember the characters we've kind of talked about in Matthew. We've talked about, on one end of the spectrum, you've got the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious establishment, if you will, who are in total opposition, like active opposition to Jesus. And then the other end of the spectrum, you've got the disciples who have repented, who have acknowledged who Jesus is. Did they get all of it yet? No, they do not. They're growing. And then you've got right in the middle, everyone else, the crowd, the crowd. And the crowd is not actively opposed to Jesus. They're ambivalent. Um, now they come like this father does. He comes uh, they come interested. They come interested in the healings. They come interested in, yeah, this is great. Uh, I like the things that Jesus is saying. I like what he's doing. Uh, yeah, I'm going to bring my sick uh, relative to him to heal. But the problem is, as Jesus pegs it here, not only they're evil and adulterous, he frames it differently here, they're a faithless and twisted generation. And he's talking about the crowds, not just the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's talking about by and large, with the exception of the few disciples he's gathered around, he's talking about the generation. Why is he addressing the father? Because the father is a representative of that generation. He's got an example right in front of him displaying faithlessness and twistedness. And there's more to it than that even, because the language that Jesus used here of faithless and twisted is reminiscent of, you guessed it, an Old Testament passage, Deuteronomy 32. And I'll just, we don't, you don't have to turn there. Let me just frame what's going on in Deuteronomy 32. Moses gives the law. The people of Israel are right on the edge of the promised land. They're about to go in. He gives the law. He re-gives the law. It's a covenant recommitment. And then he basically says in 29 that you guys are going to go astray. You're going to go straight from God, and then he's going, to bring, he's going to regather you. Deuteronomy 30, he's going to regather you as a people. That's what we looked at that last week, where Jesus and John, they're seeking to do that. But what happens is Moses has Israel learn a song in Deuteronomy 32, and the, re, the purpose of the song is to relate, here's what Israel's history is like, and he makes Israel memorize it so it's a witness against them in the future. And in the middle of this song in Deuteronomy 32, it describes how God has called Israel out, how God has rescued Israel from Egypt, and uh, how he's blessed them and done many great things for them. And yet Israel, in spite of God's blessing and care, walks after other gods, rebuffs God, and goes after other gods. And in that connection, he uses similar language. The song uses similar language to what Jesus is using here, faithless and twisted. Meaning what? You've seen all of God's benefits, the things that he has given, and yet you're spurning them and not exercising faith. And that's what he's telling his generation. They've come, 
the crowds have come, not in active opposition. They've come for the benefits. They like to hear Jesus, but they have not repented and placed faith in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of David. And the Father is a representative of that. He doesn't call him Son of David. He doesn't identify Jesus correctly. He's just there for the benefits. He's there for Jesus' mercy. Now, does Jesus show mercy? Absolutely he does, because that's who Jesus is. But notice Jesus' attitude towards someone like this, someone who even reaps some of the benefits of being near Jesus and his disciples and receiving benefits from Jesus, and yet not repenting and trusting and following Jesus. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. Twisted has the idea of moral corruption. The way you're responding, it looks nice on the outside. Oh yeah, you're coming to me to have your son healed, but it's actually twistedness because you're willing to receive and receive and receive and not repent and have faith. And notice Jesus, how he punctuates this even more. How long am I to be with you? What is Jesus saying? It's a rhetorical question, which he's saying, I'm done with you guys. I'm, I'm ready to go. And we understand that he's headed towards the cross as the ultimate fulfillment of that. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And you could render it this way. How long am I to put up with you? Because you guys, you guys just keep coming, the crowds keep coming, like this father does, doesn't acknowledge me as the Messiah, happy to get the goodies, and then go and not repent and believe. Jesus is saying, essentially, I'm done. And we already understand he's been done for with this generation, but he just emphasizes it here. Now, what does Jesus do? He does still exercise compassion, Notice what he says, bring him here to me, bring, bring me the child. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. So, that's not the issue and the focus of this is not just another healing by Jesus. We know that Jesus can do this. We, he's done it many times before. But what has happened with the Father actually introduces two issues, and we've been focusing on one. It introduces a problem with the Father as a representative of that whole generation being faithless and twisted. But if you notice, it also introduces another problem, and we'll deal with that here in a second, but there's a second problem that's kind of buried in what the father says. Notice what he says. He, he, he states his case and the problem with the kid, but then in verse 16, he says this, and I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Now that's surprising. Um, that's surprising and that's the second problem. There's not only a problem with the father, which Jesus is already dealing with. He's saying you're, you're part of this faithless and twisted generation, but there's also a problem with the disciples. Why do I say there's a problem with the disciples? Well, turn back to Matthew 10. Back in Matthew 10, where Jesus is commissioning his 12 apostles, his 12 disciples, to extend his ministry as he is focused on Israel, we read this in 10.1. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. In other words, the disciples, the twelve, have already been commissioned and given the authority. They have been deputized to be able to cast out every unclean spirit and heal every disease and affliction. In fact, Jesus says later in verse 8, he gives a command, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. So by the time we get to Matthew 17, and the father is saying, hey, I brought my kid to your disciples, and they were not able to cast it out. Not only is there a problem with the father, there's a problem with the disciples. And Jesus first deals with the problem with the father, which we've been focusing on, and then he deals with the problem with the disciples, which we will focus on next. There's two problems here. And both, as we will see, are problems with faith. With regard to the, pro the, the Father, the issue is the issue of genuine faith or lack thereof. He is faithless. 
He doesn't have any faith. Because genuine faith, true faith, is recognizing Jesus' identity as the Messiah, the Christ, God and Son, God the Son incarnate. If you do not recognize Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, God the Son incarnate, you are faithless. You have no faith. Because what is biblical faith? Biblical faith looks outside of itself to one who is faithful, totally faithful, and you can't have a connection, you can't have a relationship with the one who is totally faithful unless you acknowledge his identity. And his identity is nothing less than God the Son incarnate, the Christ, the ultimate king of the world, who will reign over the world, over all. Do you recognize Jesus' true identity? Remember the issue? Identity, power, and authority, and then you act on it. That's what faith is in Matthew. Do you recognize Jesus' true identity, power, and authority, or is he merely a nice guy? Our culture is happy to say that Jesus is a nice guy. It's happy to say that he's a good teacher. Maybe you say that. Maybe you give lip service to the fact, oh yeah, Jesus is the Messiah, but in your heart of hearts before God himself, God knows your heart, do you recognize Jesus' true identity? You have to recognize his identity. Okay, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of David, God the Son incarnate. But based on his identity, what does that mean? It has to imply, if you really know and acknowledge Jesus' identity and who he is, then you have to recognize his power, his authority, and his character. Do you recognize Jesus' identity, power, and authority, and character, or is he merely a nice guy? Here's a second question. Do you hang around Jesus and his people for the benefits, or do you want him? Because Jesus already set the terms. Remember how I said this, this section kind of ends this, this section... Um, starting in 1621, and what Jesus has already set the terms of discipleship. You want to come to me? You want to follow me? Anyone who wants to come after me, the focus and the object of the Christian life of being a disciple of Jesus is Jesus himself. But other people, people will come, and the scriptures testify to this, and they'll love to hang around Jesus and his people for the benefits. They're nice people. Good stuff, hanging out together, some benefits on the side. Do you want to hang around Jesus and his people for the benefits, or do you want him? And if you don't want him, you do not have faith. If you do not want Jesus, then you don't know him. And we see Jesus' attitude towards those who come only for the benefits. Suppose you are here this morning, and you're coming and hanging around uh, the uh, us as the church, because you like the benefits, you like our company. Yeah, they're a little weird, but you know, I, I like hanging around. There's a lot of benefits. There's the potlucks. There's, there's the, they come and care for me when I'm sick. But you know, Jesus, I don't know about allegiance. Then Jesus would say to you this morning, oh, faithless and twisted person. That's his attitude towards you, if you're only coming for the benefits. And Hebrews, here's another book that describes this. Hebrews describes the reality of those who get near. They get close. They, get t- they taste. And they don't know God. And I hope none of you are in that situation this morning. I hope and pray that your hearts want Jesus and want to drop on your knees and say, have mercy on me, Lord, Son of David. I am a sinner and I need, only, I, I need your sacrifice on my behalf I need your righteousness in my place, and I want to follow you no matter what. And I hope that is true from your heart, because if you're only coming for the benefits, you're only hanging around on the fringe, you're getting close, you're even tasting some of the benefit, but you're not surrendering to Christ, then Jesus says, oh, faithless and twisted person, how long am I to bear with you? This is life and death stuff, folks. This is not... This is not playing church. This is Jesus telling us the terms of what it means to have true life and following him. Genuine faith recognizes Jesus' full identity 
and does not abuse his mercy. But then we see this. Remember I said there was two problems. There's a problem with the father, and he doesn't have genuine faith. But then there's a problem with the disciples. And the issue there is not genuine faith, but littleness of faith. And so what we see in verses 19 and 20 is this. Great faith, great faith, relies completely on Jesus' identity and power to accomplish his interests. Great faith relies completely on Jesus' identity and power to accomplish his interests. Look at verse 19. So there's this unresolved tension. He's ad- the, uh, Jesus has addressed the Father at this point, but there's this other issue because, remember, the disciples are authorized to cast out demons and they can't do it, or they don't do it, or something's wrong. And so the disciples are questioning this, verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? What's the reason? What's the reason that we couldn't cast it out? They know that they've been authorized to do this. Evidently, they've attempted to do this. And Jesus addresses the issue forthrightly. Verse 20, he said to them, because of your little faith, because of your little faith. Now, little faith, remember I said that Matthew has been developing this theme of faith throughout, and he's addressed it multiple times. Well, this, this idea of littleness of faith is, a, is something that he's been developing all along. What's interesting is in the Gospel of Matthew, there's only one other Gospel, the Gospel of Luke, that uses this term, and it only uses one time. So this is a peculiar term for Matthew, littleness of faith, little faith. And he's been developing it. But every time he uses it of someone, it's always a disciple. It's always a disciple. He never uses the term little faith to someone like a scribe or a Pharisee or one of the crowds. He only uses the term littleness of faith with regard to disciples, those who do acknowledge who Jesus is and his identity, and they are following him. In other words, those who have genuine faith. So the question of littleness of faith is not, do you have no faith? Yeah, you have some. Jesus acknowledges that, but the problem is it's defective. It's defective. So when we talk about littleness of faith, it's not whether it's genuine or not. It's the question of, is your genuine faith defective or not? That's what we're talking about now. And let me just give you a survey of the other times that Jesus has used this term. He used it in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6, verse 30, when talking about why are you anxious? Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is directed to the disciples first and foremost. And what does he say in uh, in chapter 6? He says, why are you guys anxious about clothing and food? If the father um, takes care of the birds of the air and clothes the lilies of the field, is he not going to much more take care of you, O you of little faith? There it is. And what is Jesus' point? The issue of your anxiety about the daily concerns of life makes your faith little. It makes it defective. Because why? Because your faith is not looking towards what is outside you to the Father and His goodness and His care as those who are following Jesus and seeking first His kingdom. Remember, that's how that section ends. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So Jesus is critiquing the disciples saying, look, if you have anxiety about daily concerns of life, the issue with your faith is you're not looking to the Father and who He is and His care and concern and trusting that fully. So you have little faith. He uses it again in chapter 8, verse 26. Uh, There's a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is in the boat with his disciples, and the boat's getting swamped, and they're terrified, and they come up to Jesus, who is asleep in the back of the boat, and he says, Lord, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus rebukes the wind, and it quiets down. He's like, why are you guys afraid, O you of little faith? Here, it's not anxiety, it's fear that is threatening faith. And what they should have done is, yeah, their grasp of who Jesus is is growing, but realize, okay, this is the Messiah, he's in the back of the boat, he's not going to drown in the middle of the Galilee before before he completes his mission. They should have looked to who Jesus is, what his mission was, and that would have caused them to act, even in the midst of that storm, not in fear, but in faith. 
Jesus uses the term again in chapter 14, verse 31, also a storm on the Sea of Galilee. But this time he walks up to the boat and Peter's like, hey, can I come out uh, onto the water? Remember we said the only one in the Old Testament who has the right to walk on water is God. So there's this whole scene where it's portraying Jesus as God and he's God the Son walking on water. And the disciples have some sort of grasp of this. And Peter gets out of the boat and he's looking at Jesus and he's walking on water. It's happening. And then what? He starts to see the wind and the waves and he starts sinking. And what does Jesus say? Why did you doubt, O you of little faith? So anxiety threatens faith. Fear threatens faith. Doubt threatens faith. What should have Peter done? We said it when we worked through that passage. Peter should have kept, all right, I'm looking outside myself. I'm looking to Jesus, who is God the Son. He's causing me to walk on water. And he could have kept walking if he would have kept depending, rather than what? Looking to the circumstances, the wind and the waves around him. And then most recently, Jesus has used this term, littleness of faith, in chapter 16, verse 8. This is after the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, and then they're, they're in the boat, the disciples are in the boat, and they're like talking about, we didn't bring enough bread. It's almost comical, except it's sad, because Jesus says, why are you guys talking about bread, O oh, you of little faith? They're looking for a very common concern. It's almost back to the Matthew 6 kind of thing, the cares of life. And it's threatening their faith when they should have seen, okay, I've got God, the Son incarnate, the Messiah in the boat, and he just fed a bunch of people. Should be no problem, even if we did lack anything for him to take care of that need. And then in contrast, so that's, the, that's how Matthew has used this term of littleness of faith. In contrast to the littleness of faith, there are two episodes in Matthew that talk about greatness of faith. There are two people in Matthew that describe or illustrate greatness of faith. One, the centurion, the Roman centurion in Matthew 8. And you remember what happens there. Something very similar in a lot of ways to the father approaching Jesus in Matthew 17. The centurion comes up to Jesus and says, uh, my servant is suffering. Uh, and Jesus is like, oh yeah, I'll come and heal him. Lord, don't have to come. I know that you're a man under authority just like me. And you can just say the word and it's going to happen. Why is that? Because the centurion recognizes to some extent Jesus' identity and he sees his power and authority, and he acts like it. He acts like it. You don't even have to come. Just say the word. And what does Jesus say about the centurion? Truly, I've never seen faith like this in Israel. Because he sees Jesus' identity and his power and authority, and he acts like it. He acts on that knowledge. Second, we already looked at earlier, the Canaanite woman. The Canaanite woman. And there, Jesus is actually explicit um, of using the term great faith, as we've seen it. And why, what, what did the Canaanite woman do? She saw Jesus' identity, the son of David, the ultimate Davidic king. She knows his power, his authority, his character, that even blessings are going to come to Gentiles like her. And she persistently, she acts like it. She, in persistent com persistence, comes to Jesus for mercy. And so back in Matthew 17, as Jesus talks to his disciples, and he says, the reason you couldn't do this is littleness of faith. We don't know exactly what that looked like. Was it anxiety? Was it fear? Was it doubt? Was it the cares of life? We don't know. But what we do know is that the disciples somehow failed, even though they acknowledge Jesus' identity, so they have genuine faith, they fail to continually look to him and trust him for the power and authority to do what they're doing. Because they don't have any authority and power in and of themselves to cast out demons or heal sick. What they need to do is say, okay, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king. He has the power and the authority. He gave that to us so we can cast out demons. And we trust totally in confidence on him to work through us to accomplish this act. And somehow they did not. They're looking to themselves or some such. And so that's what Jesus pegs in verse 20 as the problem. That's the second problem that he's dealing with. He said to them, because of your little faith. And then he supports what he just said. For, so now he's supporting what he just said. It's because of your little faith. 
For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed. Now, we've seen a grain of mustard seed. We saw it in Matthew 13. It's the smallest of all the seeds. Jesus is saying itty-bitty faith, itty-bitty faith. If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, which mountain? Well, the mountain they just came down with. They can see it right there. They just came down from this mountain, this mountain of transfiguration. And he's giving this illustration. You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. What is Jesus doing here? He's using hyperbolic language. He's saying, doesn't matter how faith, uh, small your faith is, it's not about the quantity of faith per se, it's about the person your faith is trusting in. And if you have the smallest of all faith, that smallest of all faith is still going to connect you with the identity, the power, and the authority of the Messiah, and then you can act on that knowledge to do unbelievable things, impossible things, seemingly impossible things like this mountain. Now, is he actually telling them, oh yeah, you can just go around willy-nilly and say, oh yeah, mountain, move from here to there, whatever. No, the point is, in the scope of what Jesus is calling them to do, because healing and casting out demons and healing the sick, that was within the scope of what Jesus was calling them to do. It's a seemingly impossible task, but no matter how little their faith is, that faith connects them with the one who is ultimately trustworthy and has all power and authority such that he can act through them. And that's Jesus' point here. You have that kind of faith. It doesn't matter how small it is if it's resting totally and utterly on me. And then in that case, you can do whatever God is calling you to do, even if it meant moving a mountain. So he's using that illustration to say, whatever I'm calling you to do, within the scope of whatever I'm calling you to do as a disciple, your faith rests on me. It's not a blanket promise. It's within the scope of pursuing Christ's interests. Great faith recognizes Jesus' identity his power, his authority, his character, and acts in confidence based on that knowledge. Put, uh, put this this way, how do you strengthen faith? We would probably all acknowledge in this room, I'm weak in faith. I do. I don't believe as I ought to. I, don't, I see Jesus' identity, I see his power and authority, but I don't act like it. Well, how do you then strengthen your faith? It's not by looking at yourself It's by focusing more clearly by God's grace on seeing who Jesus is. His identity, his power, his authority, not by looking to yourself and acting like Jesus is who he says he is. That's how we strengthen our faith, by clear sight, by God's grace of Jesus. That's why we come to the scriptures. That's why we do what we do. We don't come just to understand in and of itself or to gather new facts. We come to see Jesus, we come to see God more clearly such that we respond this way. Because of who you are, God, because of who you are, Father, because of who you are, Son, because of who you are, Holy Spirit, and because you have brought me to yourself, I look to you your power and authority to act in the way that you want me to act. What are the things that threaten great faith? We've already listed them. They've been shown in Matthew. Anxiety about the daily concerns of life, about health, about living, about food and clothing. That will threaten your faith. Fear will threaten your faith. Doubt, the cares of life, circumstances, These are the things that distract your gaze from Jesus and your total confidence in him and reduce you to little faith. See, the greatness of faith is not you. The greatness of faith is in Jesus, the one who is the object of our faith. Are you acting for Jesus' interests in the world, depending on his identity, power, and authority to accomplish them. Jesus calls us to do impossible things. Remember what we said in the feeding of the 5,000? That uh, Jesus told his disciples, you go feed them. And that's an impossible task. Jesus does ask us to do impossible things. 
because he wants us to come to him and to see, okay, you are the son of God. You are God, the son of God. I have a connection with you. I'm your disciple. You have all power and authority, so I can do what you're calling me to do through your power. And there should be great encouragement to this. It's, it's not as if Jesus is calling us to do impossible things and then, like, all right, you go do it. Figure it out. No. There's encouragement since we are looking to Jesus totally to empower us to do what he's calling us to do. We totally and absolutely look to him and to him alone. And Steve has said it before. What's, what's one of the primary ways we see this kind of faith active? Your prayer life. Your prayer life. How is your prayer life? Because if you understand that the object of my faith, Jesus Christ, is the one who has all power and authority because of who he is, and only through him I can act, then you will have a desperate prayer life. When you're self-confident, when you're self-reliant, your prayer life will fade. It won't be active. You'll be going through the motions. So does your prayer life reflect self-confidence or confidence in Jesus alone? Is it oriented? And here's the other thing. What you pray for will change too. Because what is Jesus interested in here? He's interested in, he's calling the, he called the disciples to heal and to cast out demons because that was the scope of what he was calling them to do, to advance his interests in the world. So even how we pray, are we praying oriented towards the interests of Jesus and what he's doing in the world and where he is going. So we've seen genuine faith recognizes Jesus' full identity and does not abuse his mercy. Great faith relies completely on Jesus' identity and power to accomplish his interests. And finally, verses 22 and 23, genuine faith, so now we're back to genuine faith, must embrace the suffering and resurrection of the Son of Man. Look at verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee. So what's the idea? Uh, remember, they were way up north. It, that's the last we knew of them. And now they're coming back down south around the Sea of Galilee. Seems like the disciples um, are gathering in Galilee, maybe uh, preparing for the trip to Jerusalem, which is going to encompass the rest of the narrative. But they're gathering there. And in the midst of the hustle and the bustle, gathering together, Jesus says this to them. The Son of Man, who's the Son of Man? Remember, it's that... that, that figure from Daniel 7. It's another title for the Messiah, but it presents this heavenly figure who's going to come and reign over all the world. But we've also seen in the Old Testament that the Son of Man also is one who represents a weak humanity. And Jesus is using it in reference to himself. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus has been pursuing the aims of God, and the, the language here is that, okay, the Messiah is going to get handed over into the custody of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Remember, this is a repeat of basically 1621. It's bookending that whole section. And Jesus has been talking about this the whole time. He's been focused on this, the suffering before glory, the suffering of the Messiah, which also means the suffering and hardship of his followers until glory, until the Messiah comes, until the Son of Man comes in the glory of his Father with his angels. Notice how the disciples respond. And they were greatly distressed. Now, remember the first prediction that Jesus had in 1621. What happens immediately after is Peter takes Jesus aside and says, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And we talked about that because Peter is all about the glory of the Messiah and partaking in it of himself. And he's all about um, to not suffering. And that's why he did that. That's why Jesus rebukes him. What about this, this language here? And they were greatly distressed. Every other time this phrase, there's two other times this, this same phrasing is used in Matthew. One time is uh, the parable of the unforgiving servant, which is the end of Matthew 18. And it talks about, uh, you remember that story, uh, the king forgives this guy an impossibly huge debt, and then that guy goes out and finds someone who owes him a relatively small debt, and uh, he doesn't show mercy to the other servant. And then the other fellow servants are greatly distressed, meaning not that they're sad, but they're disturbed. They're disturbed at what they've seen. 
This phrase is also used in Matthew 26, talking about when Jesus makes the prediction, one of the 12 is going to betray me, one of you 12 is going to betray me, and it talks about how the disciples were greatly distressed. So this is more the idea of being disturbed, not being sad. Yeah, there might be some sadness mixed into it because they don't want to hear of their, their, fall, their, their leader dying. We know that, but there's more to it. They don't want... They don't want the idea of a suffering and dying Messiah. They're disturbed by it, just like Peter was. So they haven't, they haven't gotten there yet. Why does Matthew put this here? I think Matthew puts this here because of his discussion about faith. He just furthered the theme of faith, what is genuine faith, what is great faith, and now he's adding the component of faith must, genuine faith, must embrace the suffering and resurrection of the Son of Man. Now, these followers have genuine faith. They just haven't put it all together yet. It's going to unfold before their eyes. But we understand the way Matthew was written. Matthew one twenty one said, You will call his name Jesus because you will save his, he will save his people from their sins. And that is where Jesus is going. He's going to the cross to be an atonement, a, a sacrifice in place of those of his people, those who would entrust themselves to him. But the disciples still haven't learned that this Messiah, yeah, he is about glory, but he also comes to his glory through suffering. He must embrace a suffering Messiah, one who dies in the place of your sin, my sin, that's why he needed to suffer. That's why it was necessary. And we don't like that. I've been saying that the last few weeks. We do not like that. That's why the, the, the disciples don't like that. We like the glory. We like the not suffering. But to realize that our sin caused the depth and distress of God the Son incarnate. That's how bad our sin is that the only way it can be dealt with is God the Son incarnate, perfect God, perfect man, dying in our place, the, 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 the eternal weight of wrath that you and I deserved needed to be poured out on one who is totally sufficient, totally worthy. And not only that, to have a human, perfect lived-in flesh human life in our place, that's why we need Jesus and that's why we need his suffering and death. Are you greatly distressed by the necessity of the suffering and resurrection of the Son of Man? And by that I mean, meaning when you think about the suffering of the Son of Man, the suffering of the Messiah, you don't want it, you don't like to think about it. When you're disturbed in that way, that you don't want to think about the Messiah's death on your behalf, you don't want to think about it, just push that aside, then two thing, one of two things is happening, or both. We are underrating the seriousness of our sin, or we're overrating our ability to deal with our sin before a holy God. If I don't want to think about the Messiah's suffering, that either means I think my sin's not really that bad. God will sweep it under the rug, which doesn't match his perfect holy character and sin being a slap in the face of the infinite God of the universe. Or we're thinking, yeah, it's that bad, but I can make it up. I can fix it. I can do it. I don't want to think about a suffering Messiah on my behalf. I can fix it. Either of those two scenarios, you're being distressed in the way that talked about here by the suffering and the resurrection of the Son of Man. And you, genuine faith doesn't, we could even say it this way, isn't greatly distressed, but celebrates, embraces, to use the language of Paul, boasts in the suffering and the resurrection of the Son of Man because we realize that is the only way that we can enter the glory of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Only if you embrace, acknowledge, celebrate, boast in the suffering and the resurrection of the Son of Man, if your faith does not have that component, it is not faith. You must embrace the suffering and resurrection of the Son of Man. Matthew's getting his audience to think about faith 
and to examine their faith. It is a good and healthy thing for all of us, each one of us, to examine, is my faith genuine? Is it great? Let's pray. Father, we understand that none of us could have even faith because faith itself is a gift of you. And so we pray that you would open our eyes fully wide to see the Son, to see his identity as the ultimate Davidic king, the ultimate ruler of the world, to see him as the one who has all power and authority, to see his goodness, his kindness, his fierceness, his holiness. Lord, when we see Jesus rightly, we see you. Lord, help us to see rightly. Help us to see the suffering Son of Man, the suffering Son of God, the suffering Jesus, the one who atoned for his people's sin and lived the righteous life such that through faith and faith alone we could know you, stand with you, with a, counted with a clear record because we're counted with the righteousness of Christ. Lord, help us to see the Son clearly. Lord, we have weak faith. Grow our faith to not look to ourselves at all, but to have our gaze totally fixed on who you are and who Christ is and to act on that knowledge. Lord, we don't act. We're cowards. We are doubtful. We're anxious. Lord, please forgive us for these things and help us to act based on who you are. Make ours a great faith. Not because we are great, but because Jesus is great. And we want to act for your interests in the world, not to glorify ourselves, but to glorify you. Help us to do that as individuals and as a church, as a people. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.